When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Ben Zdenchanovich. I'm your host today. Uh, I will be interviewing Ben Holtzman, a assistant professor of history at Lehman College. And Ben studies the intersection of political and social history in, in the United States with a particular focus on politics, capitalism, race and class, cities and social movements. His research has been supported by fellowships from the Mellow Found, uh, the Mellon Foundation, the, Mel- the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has published academic articles in Modern American History, the Journal of Social History, the Journal of Urban History, and several edited collections. And today we'll be discussing his really fantastic first book, The Long Crisis, New York City and the Path to Neoliberalism, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Uh, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Uh, Thank you. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here, and I'm very grateful for the invitation. Great. Absolutely. Uh, So why don't we start by, uh, if you'll just uh, just sort of introduce yourself, Uh, tell us a little bit about your, uh, you know, your scholarly uh, background, your interests, and what led you to this particular project. Yeah. So, um, so you did a, a, a really appreciate that uh, that that uh, kind and thorough introduction, and that that covered um, uh, some of the some of the basics there. Um, so, as you mentioned, I have been teaching at Lehman College as part of the City University of uh, New York system uh, since the fall of 2020, and uh, I'm really happy and uh, grateful to be a part of that uh, rich, uh, vibrant. Um, uh, tradition of, uh, of public education. Uh, and I teach courses there on a variety of subjects, American politics, uh, social and political history, New York history, social movements, and the like. Um, so I, I initially, you know, got involved or got interested in this, this project. If I, I kind of want to, if we, uh, to go there is, is, um, I uh, so like many academic first books, this began as a dissertation. Uh, so I went to uh, did my PhD at Brown University, and you know I had also grown up 
in the suburbs of New York City. And when I was thinking about a dissertation topic, you know, I was thinking about, you know, a number of different possibilities and the kind of scholarly questions and things that, that kind of stood out to me was, you know, especially uh, I'm a historian, my PhD is in history, I, I work as a, a professional historian, and historians have spent, you know, a lot of time at that point uh, really thinking about for the post-war period, uh, the period of the, you know, urban crisis and really thinking about uh, um, the decline of cities in the post-war uh, decades um, and kind of uh, you know, the variety of reasons for that and um, the variety of ramifications of that, particularly in the industrial uh, Midwest and in the Northeast, along with the rise of the Sun Belt. Um, the historians had thought a little bit less at that time about the kind of period after the urban crisis, the period of, uh, of what for many cities in the late 20th century was a period of economic rejuvenation uh, or gentrification. Um, and so I was really interested in kind of thinking about that period. Simultaneously, it was a period that I was somewhat old enough uh, to have experienced. Uh, so as I said, I, I grew up in the suburbs uh, outside New York. So I, I have a sense of remembering um, just the, the very kind of visual elements, the impressions that one would have as a, as a child of, of you know, having some somebody who was, even as a young person, spending a fair amount of time in, in New York City, um, seeing the changes from early uh, memories in the 1980s through uh, uh, some of the uh, transformations that were taking place under Mayor Rudy Giuliani in the 1990s. And we wanted to think about that um, how that transformation really took place. So there's both a scholarly need um, and a personal interest in really exploring those questions and doing so in New York. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll say about that is that when I uh, really kind of began moving into some of the literature around the economic and political transformation of urban areas in the late 20th century, as I said, there was less at that time uh, from coming from historians, uh, more coming from sociologists and uh, geographers. Um, and, uh, you know, that literature really gave us a, a really rich understanding of some of the political and economic transformations that were happening in the city at this time, thinking through processes of, of inequality, of gentrification, uh, of displacement. Uh, but I, I found that in a lot of those, uh, that literature, uh, often with a kind of Marx influence, um, uh, it tended to, to, without trying to oversimplify the process, uh, it, you know, without my, at this time, oversimplifying what they're describing, uh, really depict this as a process of, um, that was uh, overwhelmingly uh, really led um, by kind of market-oriented individuals, more kind of conservative-minded uh, folks, what we think of as the kind of classic neoliberals. Um, and, you know, I thought that that was you know, really interesting to me and a really worthwhile way of explaining it. But I wondered if there was more to the story. Um, and so uh, really thinking about uh, the, the question of how New York in particular, and, and this was a stand-in, of course, for what's happening for many cities across the United States in the late 20th century, how the economic and political changes were taking place in the city and how maybe they were being shaped uh, by uh, um, a wide variety of city populations that went beyond the kind of more elites or business interests or, um, you know, 
market-oriented uh, neoliberal mayors that we had tended to associate with that process. And so exploring that and thinking about that question uh, really led me towards, uh, towards beginning the project. Great. So, uh, yeah, why don't you just kind of lay out the lay out the argument of the book? What, what are some of the the uh, you know broader claims that uh, that you're making here? And then maybe we can uh, dive a little bit closer into uh, into some of the specific case studies that that you look at here. Yeah. No. Um, great. So, so the, really, there's a there's a couple different arguments that I'm I'm making in the book. Um, and so one of them is you know kind of what I ended on uh, to really think about this process of if we want to think about it as neoliberalism, you know, a process that tends to be associated with uh, the uh, increase of kind of uh, uh, political and economic processes that rely more and more on uh, the market and private sector, all right? So that kind of shift from uh, the provision of, of more government or state-oriented services and, and, and processes uh, towards empowering and uh, a greater, um, both an empowering of and a greater reliance on the private sector and market for the provisions of various kinds of services or, you know, eliminating them entirely. Um, and so to, to think about that, that process as, as one that, um, of, of how it rolled out locally, on the ground uh, and by a wider swath of actors than the literature had previously really tended to depict that process as, as taking place. So what I found as I dove into a variety of case studies that were looking at the transformation of New York during this period was that um, you know it was often um, you know New Yorkers who were really concerned about the conditions of their neighborhoods or their uh, local park or the city entirely, who were beginning to uh, enact uh, various kinds of processes or, or solutions or experiments to deal with those conditions that began a process and facilitated a larger process that then um, pushed the city towards the greater uh, reliance on the private sector or market. Um, so that's, that's to say that uh, uh, let me let me back up a little bit from that explanation. So, you know, kind of this, the project really begins in the late 1960s, uh, when the city, uh, when New York is really beginning uh, to experience a uh, a real um, uh, economic decline. Uh, it's the beginning of a long period of economic uh, and, and municipal budget cutbacks in the city. Uh, services begin to constrain. Uh, so that's really the starting point for uh, the project, and. What I'm doing in the, in, the, in the project is really seeing how um, New Yorkers responded to those conditions um, on the ground, in their neighborhoods, in different communities. Um, and, and again, what I, what I really tended to find in, in a variety of case studies, case studies was them turning towards a variety of experiments to kind of try to um, hold on to existing municipal services or preserve, you know, services uh, like the conditions they expected in parks or uh, a kind of right to a certain security in housing or uh, responding to new issues like rising crime. Um, and that in doing so, they led to, uh, they really helped to facilitate a larger process that, that ended up pushing the city towards a greater reliance on the private sector and market for the provision of those kinds of services. Um, 
so that's that's one of the the the, the arguments of the book, and and I can get into to other arguments or, or get into some of the case studies. Yeah, why, why don't we talk a little bit more about this process of decline itself? So we're, uh, I mean, maybe we can start with, um, uh, you know, chronologically, what is, uh, you know, what's preceding this in the the sort of New Deal uh, during the New Deal order from the the 1930s through the 1950s, early 19 uh, 1960s. Um, uh, you know, we have what you know, people like Joshua Freeman have have you know really identified as as kind of a uh, uh, sort of a social democratic sort of oasis in New York City, right? With with an enormous amount of, uh, of public services, federal and uh, and uh, you know municipal investment. Um, uh, what if you could just talk a little bit more more about that and you know how what what exactly is driving this process of decline over the over the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies? Right. Yeah. No. That's an important place to uh, to to really add some some necessary context to the period that I'm I'm looking at. So I appreciate you raising that. So really, beginning in the 1930s and um, really through the 1960s, especially, there's a significant investment on behalf of the federal government um, in in cities. Um, uh, you know, and especially that really tends to especially be true uh, in a place like uh, New York. It's not exclusively a story uh, limited to New York, but we really see uh, um, a kind of uh, mutual relationship between um, a, a certain level of federal investment in um, cities and um, along with um, a series of uh, local administrators in New York who are um, trying to uh, really, uh, by and large, boost um, a kind of provision of municipal services. Also, uh, New York is home to you know, a range of um, uh, things like public hospitals, uh, a, a vibrant uh, city uh, university system uh, that had for uh, many, many years provided free education, uh, very low transit fees, in addition to just an enormous uh, transit system to make um, you know access to um, public transportation um, and mobility available to working class populations, a vibrant park system. Um, and so, you know, it, it'd be easy to, I think, overstate um, the um, the widespread, uh, you know, this was not a utopia by any means, and it was a, it was a, it was a structure that had that was always embedded uh, with um, a certain amount of class and especially racial inequalities uh, throughout. So it is not a, a, a you know, a period in which uh, inequality is being eliminated, and that we especially see um, uh, uh, less of an investment in addressing uh, various kinds of racial inequities um, and and um, differenti- differences in in access to municipal services by across race. Um, but at the same time, that there is a particular investment and one that um, does uh, tend to you know cut across um, wide populations of the city in creating a kind of robust, uh, socially democratic oriented um, city. And that really begins to, or um, really begins to, to come apart in the 1960s. And it happens you know, for a variety of reasons. It's cast uh, overwhelmingly, particularly in the 1970s, when the city is at the worst of its economic crisis in um 
and uh, and nearly goes bankrupt in the 1970s is being simply about an excess of uh, provision of social services and particularly uh, things like welfare. Now, in truth, this is uh, vastly overstated um, and um, uh, and is you know essentially a, a kind of uh, you know, especially racialized boogeyman um, about uh, that's used to really strip away uh, many of these, um, this or undo this system uh, in the midst of New York's bankruptcy in the mid 1970s. Um, you know, that's not to say that the the uh, uh, New York's municipal government had always been, um, particularly into the 1970s, um, uh, run in a fiscally responsible manner. Uh, New York, uh, especially in the late 60s and into the 1970s, is is incurring tremendous amounts of debt. Um, but you know, the, the story to uh, its economic decline is a bit more complex. You know, involving uh, a lessening of investment of uh, of cities by on behalf of the federal government. Um, a disproportionate burden of various kinds of healthcare costs that are uh, that New York faces that are unlike other kinds of cities across uh, uh, um, the country, uh, you know, and of course, you know, familiar kinds of uh, stories for what's happening in other cities, like an exodus of uh, white population, white sort of middle class populations to the suburbs, a, a disproportionate. Um, uh, investment on behalf of the federal government in suburban areas, uh, capital flight, those kinds of things that are really um, kind of, you know, uh, um, you know, stripping away at the economic foundation of that uh, more socially democratic oriented system uh, that leads to um, a period of really economic uh, decline and economic restrictions in the late 60s and certainly into the 1970s. Right. So what is this period of this process of decline, of disinvestment? Uh, so what are the consequences for, uh, you know, everyday everyday life in, in New York City? What, what is this starting to look like over the course of, this, of the 60s and 70s? Yeah, so this is felt in all sorts of different ways. Um, and, you know, and especially, you know, where conditions had um, long been um, troubled in, in lower income communities of color, uh, conditions decline um, further in terms of uh, the conditions of uh, schools, in terms of the conditions of uh, parks, um, and, and, you know, the city gets, you know, Dirtier, um, uh, and but that's also something, and that that is simultaneously um, an experience or con- a condition that, while you know, at its at its worst, is in the kinds of areas that had long suffered those, um, um, you know kinds of conditions that really extends to larger swaths of the city, right? So, um, you know, and I think really surprising ways. I mean, again, we can kind of stick with the example of, of parks. It might surprise New Yorkers who are familiar with, um, you know, present day uh, New York City to know that you know, Bryant Park in the heart of the uh, Midtown Manhattan would had really been you know was really by the 1970s considered you know <laughs> a really dangerous park uh, to too many people. Uh, we could get into whether the extent to which that's overstated. Uh, same thing with Central Park, but nonetheless, the perception of uh, the park as a kind of dirty, you know, crime ridden. Um, 
uh, place uh, in the heart of a kind of business district of Manhattan, uh, nonetheless speaks to the a kind of decline of uh, of conditions in the city um, that that um, that are experienced um, during this time, and even I think you know less um, noted in terms of um, you know what gets media attention, but you know. In the outer boroughs of Staten Island or Queens or or Brooklyn, um, a similar kind of uh, concern with, you know, less less in funding for schools, worsening conditions in parks, increases in crime, uh, those kinds of things that you know um, really alarm a lot of New Yorkers about the the conditions that they are then facing in this period. Right. So uh, so. Uh, speak a little bit more about this uh, this sort of um, bottom up sort of grassroots uh, response to uh, to this to this disinvestment to uh, to this um, to this, uh, this sort of you know decline that is taking place in, in New York City. Yeah. So, so again, what I what I find and what I trace in a number of in across my case studies and a number of different sex sectors of of life uh, across New York, is that New Yorkers really become not just simply alarmed by these conditions, uh, but uh, determined to, to improve them, to to change them. So, for instance, in the early nineteen uh, seventies, New Yorkers flood in volunteer projects into parks. You know, uh, armed with litter bags and um, you know, uh, um, you know, a little you know, uh, planting gear and and thing to 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 things and the like to try to improve conditions um, in those parks. Right? Uh, they start to, in response to uh, rising crime, uh, begin to, uh, they begin to form uh, community patrols. Uh, and this is something that happens uh, not just in uh, you know, white middle income areas, but in lower income areas of color. Same is true for uh, what happens with parks. We see these, these kinds of moves being made uh, in a variety of different kinds of uh, neighborhoods across race and uh, class. Um, and as part of this process, so, so I should say too, that as part of this process, you know, there's a real determination to kind of, um, you know, in the midst of thinking that, look, it, does, it seems like the government or the, the city government just can't provide the kinds of resources uh, that it can to, to really aim to do something about it. Um, you know, so to improve housing, to address crime, to improve uh, conditions in parks uh, and the like. Um, and what I simultaneously was really surprised to see is that this was by and large done less out of a kind of denouncement or um, you know, explicit uh, frustration with uh, the kind of liberal politics, right? Then simply a desire to improve circumstances. So this goes back a little bit to um, one of the other kind of interventions or arguments of the book is that uh, what's in part driving this process um, of, of, of um, this, this, this shift and this uh, towards more, you know, market-oriented private sector kinds of solutions um, that are, um, you know, begin to be spurred by a lot of these uh, community-level initiatives is less um, a desire to, you know, denounce liberalism and 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 you know, bring in a new system than really to. Um, improve circumstances, right? Um, so a lot of the literature that had uh, that really thinks about this process uh, tends to depict it as one that 
is carried out by people who are you know, really ag against this kind of more socially democratic processes or even local liberal um, officials who had long supported uh, those this kind of more robust municipal services. In contrast, I'm really finding that it was the, I really found that it was um, actually the expectations that had been risen uh, through prior decades of robust municipal services that then leads in the, in the face of um, those conditions seemingly to be, be uh, diminished leads uh, a variety of actors in New York to undertake new experiments to try to maintain them. So again, they're not really less driven or they're driven less by a kind of ideological, you know, denunciation of, of, of liberal politics than they are with trying to experiment with maintaining those conditions. At first, they hope that that's going to be a short-term process, right? Um, but over time, as it seems that municipal services actually, you know, remain or municipal you know, budgets and services remain troubled into the 1970s. And as these experiments with new kinds of ways of providing um, kinds of services uh, that rely less on government prove to bear some fruits, um, that they you know, begin to think of these as potentially more um, long-term solutions, right? But that's not the idea at the beginning. So yeah, I think that's one of the the more fascinating uh, claims and discoveries that you that you make is these are not free market ideologues who are driving this process, right? We have these these sort of top down intellectual political histories from people like Kim Phillips Fine and others um, uh, about um, uh, you know neoliberalization as a as a sort of political ideological project. Uh, you're really looking at. Uh, uh, reliance on the on the private sector marketization as sort of a, an experimental um, sort of uh, 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 way of improvising, uh, of filling this this sort of vacuum that disinvestment is is creating. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's a really nice way of putting it, and that that is the process that I am I'm charting in the in the book, and that I really found through a variety of these kinds of case studies. Um, the the thing that I would add is is that the argument isn't that neoliberalism was simply a you know an entirely grassroots process. So you know, I think I think that I'm I'm you know the um, what I'm trying to show. Um, or among the things that I'm trying to show is uh, that is that part of that history, right? And that part of that history that um, I think had by and large um, really hasn't been part of uh, the literature and discussions of um, the process of neoliberalism. So in each of the chapters, I'm really um, ultimately showing how these kinds of top down, or excuse me, this kind of bottom up, or even what we might think of as kind of you know mid level um, 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 efforts, or, or really a variety of uh, or, you know processes that are you know might be originated by grassroots organizations or nonprofits or cultural institutions or foundations, uh, a variety of you know kind of sectors that we tend, especially during the late sixties and into the seventies, you know not to think of when we think about neoliberalism as playing a key role in the process. Now, at the same time, I do show the ways in which those who are driven by a more you know, ideological, you know, there are certainly actors in New York, uh, you know, in the real estate sector um, as one example, and there are others who are very committed to a vision of transforming New York 
that will lessen government um, kinds of provisions and increase the role of the private sector in market in governing New York. Um, so I'm I'm showing where the the kind of you know grassroots meets those more kind of elite driven processes. So it's not to say that those actors don't play a role. They play an important role, and they're there throughout my entire book, the more market ideological, you know, actors that we tend to associate with this process. Um, but, you know, again, I, I would, I'm arguing um, that, that just focusing on those actors or, or you know, maybe put another way by, by showing how this process unfolds, on the ground, in communities, across a local uh, city, we can see a much brighter swath of um, actors, of communities, um, who are part of driving this process, right? And how their actors really, or how their actions help to create a kind of crevices and opportunities, or just are happening alongside more top-down led processes. And that that's the way that neoliberalism both unfolds and sweeps into so many different aspects of life in a city like New York and many others during this time, right? But we have to understand how both those processes are happening in order to see how uh, neoliberalism takes such a powerful hold in the late 20th century. I think one of the strengths of the book is you have a lot of very detailed and sort of wide-ranging case studies looking at various sectors of, of the economy in the city, various uh, uh, aspects of, um, uh, of New York uh, uh, daily life that is, uh, that is being transformed through this process. So uh, why don't you just take us through some of the uh, you know, specific examples that, that you explore here uh, that show us how this, this process is actually taking place on the ground. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start with a, um, uh, uh, something that I've mentioned a few times, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about other case studies as well, but I've mentioned parks a few times, so I'll just kind of continue that thread. Um, so the end point of the park story is that people might not know, but um, in New York today, the vast majority of large parks in New York, especially in Manhattan uh, uh, and, and in business districts, are now run by um, what are essentially private organizations who are um, often or you know, um, responsible for fundraising and in many cases, the management of uh, parks. So, you know, Central Park, Bryant Park, uh, um, uh, Madison Park, um, that they're, you know, really, um, you know, pick a park in uh, Manhattan in particular, and and you you can see that, that these are actually, um, in, in many cases, um, managed um, by these private organizations. So how did that that process come to be? Well, um, you know, uh, I I show that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the ways in which as park conditions really began to decline at a local level. So I, I, you know, in the outer boroughs, in places like Kew Gardens, uh, in in Queens, um, you know, or uh, you know, in, in, in other parts of, of Brooklyn and the Bronx, as conditions decline, that um, people begin to rush into their parks to begin to try to improve circumstances conditions in them, right? And this, they begin to to do so, and really 
you know, do so with a kind of ideology that they begin to express that um, government, uh, that it seems that the city government really can no longer maintain these kinds of conditions in parks. And that process is well underway in the late 1960s into the 1970s. As I mentioned, not done with an antipathy towards liberal politics in the city, but done out of a real desire to improve local conditions in parks, right? And they're in, they're fostering all sorts of innovative ways to improve conditions from, you know, fundraising to volunteerism um, to really even um, asking the city to increase the amount of outside control that they can have over local parks in the face of declining municipal services. Now I trace that story and how that idea really gets picked up by um, some of the more um, notable parks in New York. So I really move that into especially a story about what happens in Central Park, right? And so Central Park is, um, you know, going through a period of, of, um, decline in the 1970s, um, you know, that there are, are kind of, you know, um, you know the grass is decayed, the, the infrastructure isn't being kept up, there's there's um, various kinds of labor issues in, in upkeep of the park, um, growing concerns about crime, and really just a small number of park advocates uh, begin to form small organizations that begin to promote a similar kind of idea. The city can't maintain conditions in parks. Um, not, again, with an ultimate desire to um, strip away control of parks from uh, the city or Central Park from the city, uh, but as a means to try to con preserve conditions within a beloved park. And they, you know, again, similarly promote various kinds of volunteerism, uh, various kinds of fundraising initiatives, and that, um, you know, and to, to really come up with a new solution. And I show how that, you know, idea takes a growing hold in New York, right? And that it really is only when, or especially when, there's a risk of the city actually losing control of the park. So there's a proposal in the late 1970s to potentially, you know, even shift a, a central park to control by, you know, a different branch of government, because it just seems like the city cannot maintain conditions in central park, right? That this becomes such an alarming idea that then that you know, really helps to to facilitate um, new proposals, and the proposal especially becomes uh, this this formation of this organization called the Central Park Conservancy, uh, which is going to be comprised of more um, you know kind of uh, a, a, you know both park advocates and more kind of elite figures who can do the kinds of fundraising that they think that the park is going to need from the private sector. Uh, that then you know pushes uh, for that kind of new solution for parks management, right? So tracing that process over a number of years, um, you know, begins to show us a slightly, you know, more complex or uh, different understanding of how the park system over the late 20th century really moves from being seen as almost the kind of quintessential municipal service, right? Like what you know, what could be more fun fundamental to uh, one of the uh, a role that the city government should play than you know, providing green space in the city to one that over time, you know, we have large swaths of the park system uh, be being, you know, controlled by what are essentially private organizations. I'll add there too, just at the end, that 
then Central Park becomes a model, uh, not just for other parks in New York, but parks across the country. The Central Park Conservancy in particular is really held up as a kind of model for this kind of you know, private, uh, public-private uh, organization that can begin to fundraise for and even manage parks across the entire country. And you also show, uh, especially with parks like Bryant Park, I believe it was, that uh, you know it's it's not only these private uh, sort of nonprofit organizations uh, who are sort of uh, taking over the role of managing parks. Uh, they're also enlisting the the corporate sector, uh, real estate uh, interests as well, uh, and convincing uh, business that it is it is in their financial interest to uh, to take a role in uh, in the maintenance of parks. Yeah, that's exactly right. So again, this process unfolds, it kind of develops over time. And it, it, it you know, it goes from a kind of more grassroots led process with these community led efforts to a process that in Central Park is both kind of combining ideas about traditional volunteerism with um, you know, of everyday New Yorkers, uh, while, while looking to more elite figures to serve as kind of fiscal guardians of the park, towards quickly expanding towards an even more extensive model with the case of Bryant Park. And this unfolds in the late 1970s and into the early 1980s. One disadvantage that Bryant Park has is that it doesn't really have a constituency. So it's not a local park that is surrounded by a residential area, which is, you know, true not just for neighborhood parks, but for even a central central park, which has a constituency of people who live around it, along with many New Yorkers who just truly love that park. In contrast, uh, Bryant Park is in midtown Manhattan in a business district, right? So, it, and there are some efforts in the late 1970s to try to, you know, for people who are you know, concerned about um, Brian Park to, to, to do something about declining conditions. There's a park commissioner who, who in the early 1970s goes so far as to say that Central Park could, should perhaps, or I'm sorry, Brian Park should perhaps just be simply shut down in the face of, um, you know, uh, of the inability to uh, uh, maintain existing conditions within it. But as you, you know, sort of said, there are other proposals that develop over time. Um, and in particular, there's one that gets really championed by the institution that shares uh, this space in many ways with Prime Park, which is the main branch of the New York Public Library. So the New York Public Library uh, finds that in the late 1970s, as it begins to try to undertake a major fundraising campaign for itself, that its traditional found, uh, funders, uh, the, the foundations to which it would normally go to support its, its uh, capital campaign, say, you know, we're not going to give you money to, uh, to uh, continue to, you know, exist or, you know, to, to promote your endeavors for the public library system uh, if if people won't come to the library because they're so concerned about what's happening in uh, Bryant Park, right? And, and particularly in terms of um, uh, concerns about uh, crime, right? So, so Bryant Park, or so uh, the New York Public Library officials really are part of a process that begins to turn to the corporations whose headquarters surround the park. And they too begin to, you know, Turn to their their um, their their you know, you know like minded corporate uh, officials, right? Who are also as part of the park, and they fail. Um, there's a number of unsuccessful efforts. Who, as uh, you know, 
corporate leaders try to turn to you know, others in the private sector to say, you know, we need your financial support to uh, improve conditions in Bryant Park. This is going to be you know, not just good for the city, but good for us. Who And those corporate leaders say, what are you crazy? Why would we give money to support a public park? That idea is just bonkers. You know, it takes years of legwork to actually convince the private sector that their um, you know, that their their money and their initiatives are really needed, right? And so that process through the work of the New York uh, uh, Public Library and some other key uh, uh, corporations that are surrounding the park, along with over time, you know, especially the ones that own their buildings, right? So again, there's simultaneously a kind of uh, concern about real estate values, as, as you mentioned, right? Um, to to um, to uh, improve improve uh, circumstances of Bryant Park, uh, that leads to uh, the creation of an organization called the Bryant Park Restoration Corporation, uh, which in the early 1980s um, not only devotes itself to um, you know trying to improve conditions in the park, but ultimately uh, begins even is is to convince city officials that they should really uh, essentially you know take over. The entire management of the park, right? And they succeed uh, by the mid 1980s to really, um, not completely, but by and large, um, you know, really run that park and put it more or less in private hands. It's just a remarkable transformation um, from the understandings of what, um, you know, the role of, of, the private sector versus government in providing that key uh, uh, municipal uh, service, um, and who should play that role? That that transformation just uh, goes over, you know, uh, um, occurs rapidly over the course of the uh, 1970s into the early 1980s. And so a similar process is playing out with housing, as you show in uh, in one of your chapters. Uh, so you, you have some really striking statistics about you know how landlords, because their buildings are, are no longer profitable in this in this uh, sort of period of, of white flight and disinvestment and deindustrialization, they're just really abandoning whole buildings and and even whole city blocks. And uh, and you you show how. Um, you know, low-income New Yorkers, especially people of color, are are sort of um, stepping into this situation. So, could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so, so this is a process that you know. I mean, again, uh, this is a, something a process that I trace in the the first uh, chapter of the the book. And yeah, I think you know the the crisis of abandonment in New York that really begins to unfold in the late sixties. It's just another one of those unbelievably striking moments from today's perspective. Um, you know, the idea, as you said, that there are you know, not just individual units, but in, but individual buildings, sometimes even blocks worth of buildings that are abandoned by uh, landlords um, and, and over time essentially become you know, rubble uh, is just so striking from um, uh, you know, what is happening in New York in more recent decades or, or what we know to be happening in you know, many other, really just about, just about every other major um, uh, U.S. Uh, city, right, where property values have just held so much value that the idea that you would walk away from the property that you own is staggering, right? But nonetheless, that, um, that process for a variety of reasons um, comes to take hold in New York. And, um, 
And what I show is first how uh, um, you know, low income, uh, particularly uh, people of color, particularly Puerto Rican and Afri African-American uh, residents who are facing the uh, disproportionate burdens of abandonment in places like the Bronx or central Brooklyn or the Lower East Side, um, after incurring this kind of um, uh, torment of abandonment in their neighborhoods, um, begin to say, we need to do something about this process. So we're gonna to begin to actually take over these buildings, right? And not only are we going to take over these buildings, we're gonna revitalize them ourselves, right? They call this process homestay. And it really takes hold uh, in a remarkable way, especially by the early 1970s in, in New York, right? And it begins to be, you know, these, these groups of low-income New Yorkers really begin to promote themselves as, um, you know, a key, um, uh, way to rejuvenate their areas that, that they, as low-income community members, uh, residents of these areas, can lead that process of economic uh, and uh, rejuvenation, improve housing circumstances in some of the most dire uh, neighborhoods of the city. Right. Um, so it's it's really just an incredibly impressive uh, process. But I show that how, as part of this process, they really um, begin to you know, promote certain ideas, um, you know, that, and, and how that process of homesteading uh, simultaneously gets picked up by political officials as, um, you know, certain kind of uh, more alluring aspects of homesteading get, gets picked up and held up as a model for economic rejuvenation by political support. So, you know, the idea that it's going to be private actors, not government, who leads, uh, leads uh, rejuvenation of low-income low areas. The idea that home ownership, right, not rent regulation, uh, but that home ownership is going to uh, uh, be cr critical to this process, right? Um, and that that idea, you know, which homesteaders, I think, in part, um, weary of what had been um, a very troubled record of government investment in low-income communities of color uh, by the early 1970s, uh, in part to uh, make politically uh, appealing um, um, kind of messaging uh, for the period, and in part reflecting their own kind of politics. These are generally speaking, uh, or you know, sometimes less kind of socialist, socialistic minded, um, you know, uh, um, activists uh, uh, coming with a slightly more uh, distinct political philosophy. You really simultaneously, you know. Um, uh, themselves promote similar kinds of ideas, right? So when I, I show how over the 1970s that as, um, you know, it's, it's that these, that these homesteaders really get held up as a, a sign of, uh, you know, what the private sector can do, uh, right? And how, what private actors, the role that private actors must play in economic rejuvenation of low-income areas and how by the early 1970s, by the early 1980s, especially as it is clear the amount of government investment that's going to be needed for homesteading to really be successful, um, that that really, you know, undoes a lot of the momentum um, um, from uh, homesteading, right? And that the, um, that the, the, what remains is still that kind of notion that it's the private sector that is going to lead the um, 
uh, uh, rejuvenation of these kinds of low-income areas of color. But what's simultaneously uh, forgotten is some of the other appeals that homesteaders were making, right? That, that it was necessary to, um, you know, have community members be uh, empowered in these processes, that it was necessary for community members to control these processes, that it was important to uh, maintain um, certain levels of affordability as parts of these processes, right? Those messages over time kind of fall by the wayside in favor of holding up, um, you know, a selective messaging of that home home centers were simultaneously promoting about the need for uh, private actors to lead these processes of um, you know, rejuvenation. And what's the role of the city itself in this? Are city officials encouraging this this process, or so? There's they're a little bit they're fairly skeptical in the uh, late. 60s and into the early 1970s and the early years of homesteading um, um, about the ability for homesteaders to really, um, you know, play a, a key role in uh, um, improving circumstances. Uh, over time, um, city officials become more uh, encouraging of these efforts, um, in part because there's so few other solutions. Things are, are so dire that it becomes, you know, the 70s is such a period of experimentation in the midst of changing circumstances. I mean, it's a big theme of the book that just traditional understandings or what I should say, what had been longer, longstanding understandings about, you know, the way the economy worked, about sort of the, 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 uh, the, the power of sort of new deal liberal ideology, various kinds of, you know, um, economic and political um, uh, dominant philosophies are really coming undone at the same time that longstanding, you know, um, powerhouses of the nation like New York are in severe decline. So it just ends up for all sorts of reasons being this period of incredible experimentation uh, and transformation. It's, it's why I think it, it, it's such a fascinating period, right? So, so, it, so it leads to a greater support um, for these kinds of homesteading efforts. I show there too that, you know, again, um, that, that as um, uh, by you know, uh, the, the late 70s and into the 1980s, under the tenure of Mayor Ed Koch, uh, who comes into office, unlike prior mayors uh, in New York, with a, a real firm commitment to enhancing the role of the private sector and market in city government, right? He's very clear about the need uh, in his mind to, to do this, right? How he um, both uh, begins to encourage homesteading because there seems to be no better solution. But, you know, quickly finding ways to steer these processes, not simply to community members, but to, um, you know, in some cases, private developers, you know, these, or, or in other cases, um, to, you know, nonprofits that are less kind of connected to um, the community itself than, um, you know, oriented towards, um kind of uh, pro um, uh, uh, practices that, that make them less differentiated from, you know, more kind of for private developers. And he's able to do this in the 1980s because so much of what had been simply abandoned buildings um, in, in the late 60s and into the 1970s come under municipal control 
uh, especially in the late 70s. So you know, these are buildings that, of course, landlords stop paying taxes on um, you know, when they walk away from them. So increasingly, a number of these abandoned buildings are owned by the government, just you know, tens of tens of thousands of, of units of, of housing. So he's able to you know, increasingly direct that um, um, housing, uh, that, that municipally owned housing, uh, away from community members themselves and towards these more kind of traditional private sector actors uh, to, you know, in his mind, kind of lead the economic rejuvenation of, of these low-income and moderate-income areas. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's such a fascinating project. And uh, before we wrap up, uh, I wondered if you uh, could speak a little bit about what you might be working on now. Do you have a new book in the in the works? Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, uh, so, so, uh, yes, I'm working on a new project that's called "Smash the Clan: Fighting the White Power Movement in the Late 20th Century." And this project is about how in the late 1970s and into the 1980s, uh, there is this major resurgence of white supremacist uh, organizing uh, uh, across the country, particularly in the South, but uh, this, uh, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, um, various other kinds of white uh, nationalists and white supremacist uh, sects uh, come roaring back um, uh, uh, really across the country. And what I'm looking at in this book is the movement of activists that form to uh, combat this growing threat. And this movement is comprised of um, sometimes veterans of the civil rights movement, you know, uh, people who had been involved uh, sometimes for, you know, going back to you know, the 1950s or even the 1940s and various kinds of civil rights activism, who are coming together alongside younger activists who were more recently involved in kind of anti-racist organizing or coming out of the women's movement, or the, the labor movement, who are coming together to form this, uh, this movement. And I hope that this project can um, help us to, to understand a little bit more about um, both the trajectory of, um, you know, the, the kind of longer lasting legacies of civil rights organizing after the 1960s, really kind of seeing a new uh, thread that gets picked up by activists of, uh, who, who had been involved in or influenced by uh, the 60s era of civil rights movement, um, alongside uh, uh, kind of thinking about the trajectory of the political left into the late 20th century. We tend to think of uh, the political left as really being kind of battered uh, uh, during the, the Reagan era and, and, and even in the preceding decade. There's a lot of truth to that, but there's also a lot of examples of really powerful movements that form uh, during this period. And I think that this movement um, is, is one of them. Unfortunately, too, of course, with the uh, continued um, resurgence uh, and uh, momentum of uh, white supremacists and white nationalist organizing today, um, I hope that there'll be some, some lessons that, um, that we can look to from activists of the past uh, to help to uh, really continue to formulate 
uh, strategies and, and support the continued organizing that is taking place today um, to uh, combat these kinds of currents and undermine uh, other aspects of white supremacy that exist throughout the country. Great. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds like a, a fascinating and timely project. And uh, so that's uh, uh, exciting that that's in the works. Um, so we've taken up quite a bit of, uh, of your time today. So let's end it here. Uh, uh, ben Holtzman, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you so much. I, I, again, I really appreciate um, this opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation and I um, am really grateful to uh, all the listeners. So thank you. Thank you.